It, uh, it looks beautiful from up here to see you. I just can't imagine how God in heaven feels as he's looking down from his throne at you who've gathered to worship him. The affection and love he must feel over you who've gathered together by faith to boast in Christ. It's amazing to be in his presence and to open up his word. We're going to do that in a second. But before we do so, I invite you to pray with me. All of our hope and confidence is in you, O God, the eternal God who was and is before and after time. You made all things. You spoke them into being by the power of your word. And now you have given to us your written word, inspired by men, recorded in a book, where now by your Holy Spirit you illuminate these words that were written over 2,000 years ago to make spiritual sense and to produce spiritual transformation in our lives. And so I pray that you would transform lives today, Lord. That's your intention. Through Christ, your spirit and word, that you would pierce hearts, that you would encourage the, the weak, the down, that you would uplift them, you would prick the hard-hearted and give mercy to everyone. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, one, one, week, uh, one day this morning, I was on my way to work. It was about 6 a.m. in the morning, and uh, I was at the corner, the intersection of Lilburn Stone Mountain Road and uh, Rockbridge there, right in front of the Sunoco gas station. I was uh, sitting at the red light, and uh, as I was there sitting at it, waiting for the light to turn green, this car passed me by really slowly. So slow, I got to see the driver. He had his window down. I got a glimpse of his face. It looked as if his cheeks were wet. They were shiny. It looked like uh, he was crying. So I was interested, and then I watched him pull into the Sunoco gas station. The light turned green. I proceeded to go through, and then I thought to myself, well, I can go to church and pray to God, or I can pull off into this gas station to see if this man's okay. And so uh, I stopped pulled into the parking lot, waited for him to get out of his car. He took a moment, then he got out. I rolled down my window, beeped the horn, and I said, hey man, are you okay? And at first he kind of looked confused, like he was weirded out. And uh, I get that, 6 a.m., a stranger, parking lot of gas station. I said, hey, I, I just saw you at the light. Looked like your face was shiny as if you were crying. I just want to make sure you're good. And then um, he looked at me, he said, I'm not good. He, I said, uh, well, can I pray for you? And he said, yes. And so I invited him over. I got out of my car. I asked him what was going on. And then he broke down in tears, began to weep, and told me how he had just lost his mother, how she had just died in his arms that morning. And so I hugged him. We wept together, prayed, and cried aloud to God. He told me his mom died of congestive heart failure. Uh, this happened to me the day after I found out that one of my best friends, Keith Spellman, um, died. And then that evening after I got back from church, I got a call from one of our elders and found out that one of our dear brothers in Christ here, members long time standing at our church, Jim Slagle, had passed away. Uh, three people, two days, just like that, death came. And with it, there came also the rippling effects of sorrow and suffering to all who are near and dear. In other words, 
We as people, without having to be taught this, inherently know that we were made for life. That death is not the way it's supposed to be, and yet death still is. In fact, death is the most inevitable thing that we all day, all will one day face. The book of Proverbs says that the foolish man only thinks about having a good time, but that the wise man thinks much about death. And so this morning, as we gather to celebrate this Easter holiday, what I would like to do is show you why Jesus' resurrection matters in this. Like practically, as we all face this human fallen condition, which is an end to life itself, why Jesus' resurrection is not just important as it pertains to revealing his identity, but also how it is essential to humanity, including all of creation itself, because God has used and purposed this, the resurrection, to remedy life's greatest curse and dilemma being death itself. And so if you have a Bible or cell phone, cell phones are cool here, um, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Mark, beginning in chapter 15, starting in verse 42, reading our way through chapter 16, verse 8. And if you look there in the screens, Mary, if you can go back, I've titled the sermon, Why the Resurrection Matters. Why the Resurrection Matters. Three things I'd like to show you to answer this question. Number one. The resurrection matters because it confronts death. Number two, Jesus' resurrection matters because it reveals the kingdom of God. And point number three, Jesus' resurrection matters because it promises life now and forever. It confronts death, it reveals the kingdom of God, and it promises life both now and forever. We're going to begin our time by reading the text up front, Mark chapter 15, verses, uh, beginning in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. 
for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you that the resurrection matters because it confronts death. Well, this morning, as uh, we begin to look at our text, what I would like to do is start by calling your attention to the fact that Jesus actually died. Uh, last week, Andres Ares preached out of the previous section of this chapter for us and did a fine job presenting to us the cross. And what we saw was not just the crucifixion of Christ, but also in the final moments of Jesus' life, how Mark in verse 37 recorded these words. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. And I mentioned this fact to us this morning because the fact that Jesus actually died because in the early church, this was one of the things that was pushed back against, pushed back on, the reality of Christ's physical death rejected by some groups known as Gnostics. Even today, there are some religious groups around, such as those from the Muslim community, that say Jesus, being a prophet of God, could have never been cursed by God and sentenced to death. Therefore, he couldn't have died. What probably had happened was that God created a resemblance to take his place. In other words, his death on the cross was just an illusion of another man. But what I want for us to see here in this chapter is that Mark, in the initial moments of following the crucifixion account, spends the next entire section of this chapter here, verses 42 through 47, and even those following, to show us this one main, important, crucial, essential thing, that Jesus was actually dead. If you look there in verse 43, this man named Joseph of Arimathea approached Pilate and asked for his body. Pilate was the man who had sentenced Jesus to death. In verse 44, further, it says that Pilate was surprised that he had already died. And in verse 45, after he had learned that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Three times in four verses, the word death is repeated. Multiple other words in this immediate context, such as words as corpse found in verse 45, and the word tomb report, repeated four other times in this chapter, emphasize exactly this. And so although at first this may seem like an elementary teaching, I want to stop and ask the question anyways. Why is this one fact that Jesus is dead important? Or a better question. What would happen or be different if Jesus didn't actually die? The answer, there would be no forgiveness. In other words, if this whole death thing was just a hoax, a gimmick, a trick, or spiritual mirage, and Christ did not actually really die, like literally and physically, there would be no salvation accomplished and made available to us. Why? Because Jesus had to die on man's behalf because it was man who sinned. He was without a sin nature, and yet he died. Romans chapter 5 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, the first man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, all die. In other words, Adam who is our forefather, because of his rebellion against God in the garden, we 
humanity have received the curse of death. Adam is where death finds its origin. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and rebelled against God, there came the curse placed on all humanity. And the final and ultimate dilemma of this curse was separation to God, from God and an end to life itself. This is what sin produced and how we as Christians make sense of what we're seeing in the world. And yet Christ here in this story, the sinless one, dies. The amount of space given to this burial account, which is actually present in all four Gospels, emphasizes this importance. And even Paul includes Jesus' burial in the creedal statement of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to what Paul says about this. Now I would remind you of this gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Did you hear the emphasis on Jesus' burial account? If you look there in verse 44, you'll see that Pilate isn't necessarily um, surprised that Jesus died, but rather what you'll see is that he's surprised with the fact that he died so quickly. Why? Because historically, it would have took a person two to three days to die on a cross. And so he asked one of his workers, this centurion man, if Christ was indeed dead, and the centurion man confirmed, yes, Pilate, he is indeed dead. And so here now we have three witnesses to Jesus' death, Joseph, Pilate, and the centurion, all testifying to his death, two of whom, Joseph and the centurion, had actual contacts with his corpse. This man here, this centurion, was a worker for the Roman army. It was his job and role. He had seen thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of crucifixions. He was an expert at knowing exactly what to look for in a dead person on the cross. And what I'd like to suggest to us this morning, as the reason behind Jesus' quick death in a matter of three hours, is this. Is that Jesus, instead of resisting death, or giving in to the natural human instinct to fight for life and or survive, willingly hand it over his life to death for you and for me. The good news here is that Christ, the sinless man, died a death for sin to provide for us a way to be justified on the day that we stand before God. But before I unpack this idea of justification here, let me just ask you one question. When was the last time you thought about death? Like the fact that you're actually going to die. How, how do you handle this? Or what do you think about that? How does this make you feel that death is coming? Do you live your life seeking to ignore the fact that this is true? Do you push this truth away? Or are you not worried because it just seems so far off? Are you seeking to preserve your life? Or live your best life now because you know that it's coming? It's still coming. Death is still coming. I was on Facebook this week. 
I was scrolling through some uh, posts as I was creeping through my wife's account on some friends. And um, I was scrolling. I, I like to pretend that I'm better than Facebook, but I'm not. Um, I was scrolling. I was, I, was, I was rolling past some posts. And there I saw this beautiful picture of um, my buddy's mom. Uh, my buddy's mom had passed two years ago. It was this beautiful picture of her standing on a beach. We'd been playing some phone tag. We finally called each other on the phone. We were having a conversation. I was like, bro, I saw that picture of your mom on Facebook. Wow, what a beautiful photo. She looked beautiful, man. He was like, yeah, I post that photo every year at the day of her passing. He said, you know, James, the fact that she's still gone kills me. And I said, man, I'm so sorry. And he said, James, can I tell you something? And I said, sure. He said, I'm really scared to die. He said, this week, I was sitting up in the middle of the night on my bed, sweating with my heart beating because I could not shake the feeling or thought of death. He said, every time my wife finds me awake at night, not being able to sleep, she knows that it's this, death creeping in on me and me not knowing how to handle it or deal with it. I'm scared of it. You see, many people respond to the idea of death differently. Some don't fear it at all, but guess what? It's still coming. Life is here today, and it's gone tomorrow, and some people live their entire lives trying to run away from it and or avoid the most inevitable thing. We are all going to die. Did you know that the Bible says that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting? In layman's terms, it means that it's better to go to a funeral than a party. And the fact that that doesn't sound right to us reveals just how far our culture is from true biblical wisdom. And so what do we do? We eat and we drink and we pack our schedules and our agendas. We text, we get on social media, we vacay, we go fast-paced, ignoring the most important fact and dilemma of life, which is one day after you and I die, we're going to stand before the maker. And the Bible says that God being the maker and judge melts the, ma- the, the mountains like wax. The Bible says that the whole earth trembles before the Lord, that he is a just judge. I'm talking this morning about death. Maybe this is the first time ever or maybe in a while that someone has invited you to think about the reality of your death. But the Bible says that it's really good to stop and think about this fact that it's coming. Mark here in this moment of pause between Christ's death and the resurrection as he provides to us this burial count is providing a moment of pause for us to meditate on this fact that sin has produced death. A well-named author named Francis Chan said these words, the wise man doesn't quickly move past funerals. His heart lingers in a state of mourning. The fool tells jokes as soon as the funeral ends, not realizing the damage it does to his soul. He does whatever's easiest. Eating pie is easy, but, but eating kale takes effort. The thing that builds us up requires intentionality and work. 
Contemplating death takes work. Watching a movie does not. The wise man makes time to think about serious issues. The hard work of mourning builds up wisdom in the heart. The heart refers to the mission control center of our bodies. It is the seat of decision making. This is why you and I make wiser decisions after our hearts spend time in the house of mourning. Why we tend to make good decisions at funerals and poor ones at restaurants. This morning, I'm inviting you to apply biblical wisdom to not only consider Jesus' death for sin, but also the reality of ours because of our corrupt sin nature. This is what sin and the curse has produced, an end to life itself and a separation with God. I'm so thankful that we're not going to stop here. We're going to move on to the great gospel hope. But in order for the gospel to indeed be hopeful in the way that it is, is, we must all first stop at the grave to stare death in the face. Jesus died as a sinless sacrifice for sin. In other words, the wages of sin are death and Christ paid it in full. This is why the cross of Christ is everything for us. Romans chapter 5 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what you and I get by faith in the crucified Savior's death, his righteousness. Amen? Well, that was point number one. The resurrection matters because it confronts death. I'd like to show us now in point number two that it matters because it also reveals the kingdom of God. We've been studying this book for a little over a year now. And uh, one of the main themes that we have taken note of as we've read it is this, uh, this idea of the kingdom of God. If you can remember back to chapter 1, even to chapter 1, when Jesus arrived on the scene, after his baptism by John in the Jordan, he appeared and entered into the Galilee saying these first words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In chapter 4, there was another mention of the kingdom. In chapter 6, again, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he emphasized the kingdom. And then in chapter 9, he mentioned the kingdom again, once more. In other words, all throughout this book, from beginning to end, Mark has not only presented, but also emphasized this idea of the kingdom of God. And if you look there in verse 43, this is exactly what Joseph was looking for. The kingdom of God. And as Mark names this idea, he pairs it with an intentional mention of, of Joseph's identity and role. If you look there, he, he, he tells us that Joseph was a prominent member of the council. The council that he's referring to here is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, if you remember, was a group of 72 Jewish men who were responsible in chapter 14 for accusing and condemning Christ to death. And so in this context of Joseph's request for Christ, 
paired with his search for the kingdom of God, what we learn is that Joseph was much more than just a pious Jew awaiting for the fulfillment of the messianic hope, but rather was a man of faith anticipating the redemption of Israel in Christ. This is why he went to Pilate and asked for the body. Because in light of Jesus' death and all that he heard and saw, he was convicted that Jesus was the Savior. That Jesus was and is the only hope for redemption. And I say this because it would have took an immense amount of courage for Joseph to ask for this body. Why? Because Jesus was executed as an enemy of Rome. And so despite the fact that he had been crucified for high treason and sentenced by Pilate himself to death, and that Joseph was unrelated to Christ, by the way, family members during this time were the only people who were allowed to make this request, Joseph still here petitioned for the body and right of Jesus' burial. In other words, what I want for us to see here is how Joseph's request amounted to a confession of commitment to the condemned and crucified Lord. The disciples here are nowhere to be found. This is the most dangerous part. They're all away in fear of their lives and hiding. And yet here, Joseph approaches Pilate and asks for the body. What is this? This is yet another twist of irony here in this book of Mark. Here we have a member of the antagonistic Sanhedrin group responsible for the death of Christ now being presented to us as a protagonist. In other words, someone who was once against Christ is now here for Christ. When Jesus was being accused and sentenced as a blasphemer, Joseph was nowhere to be found. But now after seeing his death and sacrifice, Joseph performs a duty of devotion to Jesus that parallels not just courage, but cost. And not just monetary cost, but also the potential cost of his very life. Mark is setting up and highlighting for us the beauty of the kingdom of God. Here in this story, we have Joseph the Sanhedrin Jew, the Roman centurion Gentile, and now in verses 1 through 8, the two women, both Marys. As we turn to consider them, these two Marys, at first it doesn't really seem like such a big deal that they're here but uh, as it pertains to early Christian tradition, because of the culture in which this text took place, having these two women, both Marys here, present in this story, instead of men to report the resurrection of Christ would have been considered embarrassing and or a disgrace. The Jewish opinion of women during this time, especially on religious matters, was not positive. The Jews did not accept the testimony of women as being credible. However, in light of Christ and everything that he has shown us throughout this book in his earthly ministry, this story here, these two Marys make perfect sense. This is the counterintuitive, countercultural gospel being presented to us and all the characters here present in this text. In other words, this is a reminder that the kingdom of God most often consists of people whose lives and stories and testimonies are looked down upon, overlooked, not considered valuable or worth it. Those whom in our society and world tend to think of lowly and are not good, acceptable. 
These are the type of people who are most often first included in the kingdom of God. This is the beauty of the gospel found in who God calls to himself and how those who are called are to respond to him after seeing his death. We read it on Friday night, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, as a reminder to our faith. But consider your calling. Many of you were not wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, this idea of the kingdom coming by the Jews during this time was misinterpreted. They thought that God's rule and reign would come through governmental power. They thought that God would elevate them as a people high and above all other nations as some sort of special identity where they can boast in their religious works and good deeds. But what they did not know or could not see is that the kingdom of God in all of its fulfillment came in and through the most humble man in the most humble way. The Son of God was born in a manger. The sinless Christ sat and ate with drunkards, tax collectors, and sinners. He touched prostitutes, forgave the unforgivable, extended mercy to, no one, to, to whom no one thought deserved mercy. To save, Jesus did the most unexpected thing. He died on a cross, and now he calls the most unexpected people in the most unexpected way to himself. This morning, as I, I, I display for you the crucified Messiah and the ideals and the values of his kingdom, I'm asking you, if you hear the call of God, this is why I, James John Martin VI, I'm able to stand before you this morning. Because God, despite my story and despite my sin and my wretched estate, because of Jesus Christ's mercy, said to me, I want you. What is your story? What is your sin? Where is your shame? Where do you stand naked and exposed? If these things have revealed to you your need for God and mercy, I'm saying to you, you're the exact one that Jesus wants to save. This is what makes Christianity and the kingdom of God so beautiful. This is an invitation this morning to repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. That was um, point number two, the kingdom. I'd like to finish up our time now by showing you the promise of life, both now and forever. Well, here in this last scene of the story, these two women, both Marys here, head on up to the tomb the first day of the week. Jesus died early on Friday morning. He laid in the tomb all day Saturday. And on Sunday, which is the first day here being described as the first day of the week, these two women are up on their way with the intention to go and care for Christ's body further. But here's the thing. Apparently, they came to their senses and on their way, one of the Marys said to the other Mary, Hey, Mary, 
We're going to a tomb and there's going to be a really big rock boulder in front of it. What are we going to do? That's going to be a problem, right? Historically, um, when tombs were carved out by makers, um, what the makers did in front of the cut or uh, hole of the tomb was uh, cut a sloped groove right before the entrance of it so a stone can be rolled down into it, but with much, which, which with great effort only be taken away. This is what the two Marys are stressing about as they're on their way up. But to their surprise, when they get to the tomb, what they see is the stone rolled back. I love their personality. They don't stay outside. They go in to see what's up. And so they get in and they see this man sitting there. And through Mark's description, we know that he's not just any man, but he indeed is an angel himself. We see that through Mark's description specifically that this man is dressed in a white robe, which is the context, or sorry, the primary color of heaven mentioned almost exclusively in all end time contexts. We also see these two ladies, when they see him being alarmed, which is the appropriate and common response in the Bible when mortals encounter immortals. And in verse 8, Mark uses the word astonished. Although Mark doesn't use the word, exact word for angel here, in Greek the word angel means messenger, and this is precisely what this young man's role was. To act as a mediator between the inexplicability of the resurrection and the women, uh, and what he says to them indicates nothing of, uh, nothing less than divine. Verse six, he says this: "Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He has risen. He is not here." If you have an NIV or ESV version of the Bible, you'll see that phrase: "He has risen." Uh, in Greek, it actually reads more accurately to say he was raised. Why is that important? Because risen could suggest that Christ did this on his own. But the phrase was raised is a passive phrase and more accurately indicates how the resurrection happened. It reminds us that Christ himself was fully dependent on God to raise him from the dead. And this is exactly what happened by and through the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was God who rolled away the stone. It was God who raised Christ from the dead. And it was God who sent this angel to give word and testify to this. And you know, as much as we may want to prove this one idea or an event with facts, Mark's intention is not this. What I want us to know in this resurrection story is that Mark's primary intention is not to give an apologetic defense of the resurrection with detail. You can find that elsewhere in Scripture. But rather, Mark is writing to encourage the early church of Rome who were living under intense persecution, experiencing trials and suffering under the reign of Nero while all at the same time seeking to hold on to the faith. You see, the fact that the tomb was empty all by itself means nothing. But rather, it is the empty tomb paired with the rest of Jesus' life that makes the resurrection meaningful. In other words, the resurrection is the one event that brings the cross and the work of Christ to life. Earlier on in the sermon, I mentioned to you how the origin of death was found in the garden with Adam. I spoke to you and I, I told you that the ultimate dilemma of the curse was death. But what I did not mention to you is that the ultimate dilemma of the death was not just found in the physicality of it, but rather the spiritual nature 
Adam's death was not limited to a physical death, but was precisely directed at his soul. In other words, what Adam's sin produced was actually an eternal death of his soul. Intimacy and fellowship with the eternal God, which he was intended and created for to experience forever. You see, this is why the resurrection of Christ means everything for us. Because at first, as Christ took on the weight of the world, sin and died on the cross, it looked like it was over. It looked as if, as if death had won and Satan had had the last word. But then on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead to display his power over sin through his victory over death, resolving our greatest dilemma. Reconciliation to God and spiritual life awoken to him as divine as we fellowship with intimacy with him now and forever. Now the scriptures say that the same Christ that rose Christ, or the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead through faith in him is the same spirit that awakens our souls and brings us to life. In other words, because of sin, we were dead inside and our death would have been without Christ eternal, but the Holy Spirit awoke in our soul by faith to God. This is what happened to you when you became a Christian and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and once you once walked, following the course of this world, living in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ for it is by grace that we have been saved. My brothers and sisters, this is the hope of the resurrection. New life now and eternal life with God in heaven with Jesus. The Holy Spirit, which is a product of salvation, is God's sign and seal of this promise. Therefore, if you have been born again, meaning if you have been made from the inside out a new person to love God and desire him and put all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have a hope living inside of you that will not be put to shame. I'm right. I, I, I'm talking this morning to encourage Christians and I'm talking this morning to offer this great resurrecting hope to those of you here who are not saved, but this morning hear the call of God. Do you hear the call? He wants to awaken your soul and bring you a type of joy and intimacy and satisfaction that you have never experienced beside, and, and besides which you would never be able to have without him. Um, are you dead inside? Do you feel down and out without purpose or meaning? Are you unsure of your status before God when you die? Jesus wants to fix that. He died for your sin and he rose from the dead to give you life now and forever. I guess my last words are this. Like Mark wrote to the church. Hey church, hey Christian, my brothers and sisters here who know Jesus intimately. I know you're living in a broken world. I know often that your sin seems like it's winning. I know that sickness is all over and death happens to many of our family members and friends. But death does not have the last word. Take heart in this. Christ has come, Christ is risen, therefore Christ will come again. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll pray. 
I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of sin, of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Easter. Thank you that you give the church eternal hope. I'm not going to die. My children are not going to die. My friends and many of my family members who believe in you are not going to die. We, the church, will live forever. You will come. You defeated the grave. And now we get to dance on it because of your work. We have nothing to fear. We have great eternal hope. Bring people into your kingdom this morning. Prick people's souls to repent and believe in the gospel. Preserve your church. Work in us this morning. We give this time to you. In Christ's name, amen.